Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. For her role in the new FX on Hulu series, Why the Last Man, Amber Tamblyn went to some unexpected places to inspire her character's portrayal. I studied Ivanka Trump. I watched many videos of her speaking to foreign diplomats. Um, In specific, the one that I watched a lot was the one where she's at the G20 summit and she sort of inserts herself into speaking to all these world leaders. She's speaking to princes and all kinds of diplomats and people from all over the world. And there's sort of this very sad way in which she is trying to be heard and to be taken seriously by these leaders. And you can see their faces. You can see that they don't really take her seriously. Uh, And I used that as sort of a frame for Kimberly's entrance into this world. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Amber Tamblin about why The Last Man, which took several years to get on the air and finally does right in the middle of a real pandemic. Later in the episode, we pay tribute to the late actor Michael K. Williams with a podcast interview he gave in 2017. But first, on the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast Roundtable, we look ahead at this weekend's Creative Arts Emmys, including the guest performer and TV movie categories. It's all next on Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Roundtable. I am your friendly podcast pal, Michael Schneider, joined as always by Jazz Tanke. Jazz. Hello, hello. And Danielle Terciano, we're... Getting to the end. Oh, yeah. So close. I can taste it. Mm. Just and in time joy- for the Oscars. Well, that's not, that's not my problem. That's your problem. <laughs> that, that, we'll, we'll turn this right back over to you guys. Yeah, no, exactly. The, those of you, uh, Adam and, and Jazz, who uh, straddle both film and TV, it's, it's never-ending. But, of course, in TV, it's never-ending, too. We're, we'll immediately start talking about globes. Globes? If globes happen? Guilds? <laughs> It still never ends. But that voice you hear, by the way, the one and only Adam B. Very. Hi. Sorry, I was so excited. I jumped right in. (laughs) No problem. The B stands for baller. It stands for boss. (laughs) All the above. So I wanted to kick off things this week, obviously. I mean, the the terrible news over the weekend, the passing of Michael K. Williams, which uh, is, I mean, shocking on a whole number of levels but of course you know we've been talking him up as the front runner in the supporting actor in a drama category which he still is and now um you know unfortunately uh it it, it will end up most likely being a posthumous honor which is heartbreaking on on so many levels and i just can't tell you uh you know just how stunning and and, and just how awful this news was. And I know you all felt it too, just still, uh, you know, as we're recording this, uh, you know, after the news came out a day later, it's, it's still just like, you know, I, I'm heartbroken. And, and I'm sure you guys are too. 
I've rarely seen the business so immediately and heartfeltly, if that's a word, express their grief online the way that they did for Michael K. Williams. It just was so clear that he had touched so many people and how they worked with him and in the work that he did as an actor um, and what he meant. Uh, I, it's, it was truly devastating to see just how many different people we, uh, you know, expressed their grief at his passing. Yeah. And jazz, I know you reached out to a couple of uh, his colleagues and, and, uh, you know, by the time people hear this, they'll have been able to pick up an issue of uh, weekly variety, uh, where you have a lovely, uh, uh, memorial from, uh, Jonathan majors. Yeah. And that was so, I mean, I highly recommend everybody take a moment to read it. Um, and I think it just goes back to Adam's point of just like the way he touched so many people, especially those that he worked with. And like, you know, he was a mentor to, to Jonathan Majors on Lovecraft country. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just, it's, it was devastating and seeing tribute after tribute, and come so it just you know it wasn't just like gone too soon you were getting stories you know Wendell Pierce who worked with him um you know on the wire didn't just post he posted beautiful tribute on Twitter and so yeah if you if if you haven't gone out and read those tributes do it and it just makes me want to go back and like watch his work again and I you know, I mean, his Emmy nomination and, you know, the fact that he's going to win his his first Emmy, you know, like he's at the top of the, you know, the predictions, right, to win now is just going to be such an emotional moment of like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was long overdue. Yeah. When when you think about, you know, the the, the fact that The Wire, you know, never got its due. Uh, and you know he's been nominated a couple of times, uh, you know, for when they see us and uh, Bessie and and uh, I think one other. Um, but yeah, this is sort of now going to be a career Emmy for him and, and a tribute to him. Uh, fingers crossed. Obviously, we don't know for sure. But Danielle, I mean, it's so rare that you see you know, the cliche actor's actor, but in this case, so true. I mean, you didn't meet an actor who didn't want to desperately either work with Michael K. Williams or had the privilege of having worked with Michael K. Williams and and still. You know, felt like you know it was such an honor that they were able to to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you guys all said it already. Just you know, the outpouring that we saw on social media and people willing to speak to us about what it meant to work with him and what his story meant. You know, in a in a broader picture. You know, he's always he was always so open about some of his struggles and his past and the things that he found to be his own insecurities. And he was such a giving actor, but a giving person that, you know, it, it feels like, it, it almost feels like we knew him better than we've known a lot of other actors, you know, who keep things closer to the vest. And um, I think that's partially why there was as much love as there was online, because he was such a real person and everybody felt that. I was just going to say, Michael, you, you know, right before we recorded this, um, posted an incredible tribute to the comedic roles that Michael K. Williams did because, you know, he was such a uh, 
he had such a wide range as an actor. I was appreci- I appreciated that you appreciated that kind of work that he did. And uh, at the end of that post is a video that I will be thinking about for the rest of this week that you found, which if you just go on YouTube and, and type in Michael K. Williams typecast, it's, it's just, it's less than three minutes long. And it, it really captures everything about him that was truly astounding from a, from an acting perspective and at the end really haunting about, about the personal demons that he was always wrestling with. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I wanted to say at the end of this episode, I unearthed a uh, 2017 podcast, uh, uh, interview that I did with Michael K. Williams. Uh, it was, uh, right after he had gone on a, another run of just amazing roles, but he had also just hosted black market for vice where it was Michael K. Williams as himself sort of playing the part of a journalist, uh, you know, really going underground, visiting some of these, you know, underserved communities, but also looking, investigating, uh, some of the dark underbelly of this country and relating it to his own struggles. And we talked a lot about that and and what it meant to him in sort of exploring these worlds, given his own struggles. But we also, we had a fun conversation. We talked about his voice and and his voiceover work and and how he wanted to do more cartoons. He even had a goofy, uh, you know, funny kids uh, cartoon character voice that he uh, shares with us. So it's it's a fun conversation, even though it's a few years old. So uh, we we didn't talk about any of the recent stuff, obviously, but uh, I'll put that at the end of this episode. So this week, we are on the road to the Creative Arts Emmys. Speaking of, we're getting close to the end. Three, three different ceremonies. Um, Just because, you know, the TV Academy wanted us to earn our keep this weekend. So uh, there's a lot going on. I mean, last still, year still. it was five. So, you know what? It's We're splitting some difference, and we'll see how True. it goes. But it's still three, so uh, the Saturday night uh, one will be much more uh, artisans heavy, so Jazz will be there covering. And then on Sunday uh, at 1 o'clock, it's more unscripted, focused, and then at 5 o'clock, more of the main scripted categories, including the, the guest actor categories and uh, a lot more. So... So I thought we'd sort of like go over some of these uh, categories that, you know, aren't quite ready for for the primetime Emmys, but nonetheless are still big and will be still talked about this weekend, starting with some of the guest categories. We got drama guest actress first up, and we'll take a look. McKenna Grace from The Handmaid's Tale, Alexis Bledel also from The Handmaid's Tale, Claire Foy returning for The Crown, which would be interesting for her to, you know, get a guest actress uh, Emmy. Uh... Sophie Okoneto for Ratched, one of the rare Ratched uh, nominations. And then Felicia Rashad for This Is Us. We all love Mama Huxtable, although some of her recent comments about Mr. Cosby, I don't know. Even though she's walked those back, that probably did not help her. But uh, anyone have a favorite in this category? So I feel like if you didn't, have to worry about the Handmaid's Tale splitting votes, McKenna has a really good chance because she brought such a fresh energy to the season. She, you know, new character, but also really challenged what we thought a rebel and a hero would be on a show like that. And looking at where the show can go in season five certainly seems to be setting her up for a continued arc in that way. But I do worry about the vote splitting. I don't know if, you know, I I, I don't know if it's going to, hurt her given that she's up against Alexis. 
it's almost too bad. She's uh she's the she's an actress who's been uh had a career that's in which she's basically played the younger version of a lot of different characters in the past. I think the thing that people maybe most know her from before this was I Tanya when she played the young Tanya Harding. Um so it's nice to see her play just a character who's not a young version of anybody in this. And then she also has um, a uh, really outstanding upcoming role in the Ghostbusters movie, Ghostbusters Afterlife. She, uh, I don't think this is in really a spoiler to say that she plays Egon Spendler's granddaughter. And the movie, I've seen it, and the movie is uh, really her movie. It's really centered around her character, and she's pretty outstanding in it. So um, she's, you know, if she wins here, it'll sort of tee up a real moment for her this fall, where she, I think, sort of steps into her own as as somebody that people are going to all of a sudden sort of under, know who she is and what she's what she's about. Although you can't discount uh, the crown, of course, and and Claire Foy, you know the the fact that she returns, uh, you know, in the flashback playing Queen Elizabeth once again, uh, hard to you know imagine voters not just saying, "Hey, I remember Claire Foy as Queen Elizabeth in the Crown." Here you go. <laughs> it's a great scene. It's also a scene. It's like exactly. it's it's like a shot. Exactly. It's like a single shot. She's wonderful in it, but it's one. Sh- it's like a slow close up. I feel like that needs its own category. Like that's unfair. You know. I mean, historically, guest roles sometimes can be one episode. Sure, it's still a little unfair to put that up against a guest arc. But this mm-hmm. this is not even a full episode. So yeah, I mean, that's. I kind of feel like a lot of voters will just vote for Claire, but I. I don't think they should in this case. I'm going to say it. Netflix is going to get mad, but I'm like, you guys need to actually look at the work and stack the work up against each other and then make an informed decision. You can't just check a box <laughs> because you know and like the name. Well, that brings us to Don Cheadle in uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier <laughs> in the right, drama guest actor category. Same I mean, like, Don, listen, Don and Claire are both great and they both deserve mm, awards, no, but it's no. so hard to compare one scene. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Adam. I was going to say, Don Cheadle is a great actor in a general sense. Yeah. He in no way does anything in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier that, that to my mind, deserves a Emmy award right. or a nomination for that matter. It's the, it's a nothing part. He says like five lines and it's yeah. yeah. He, he literally walks game. down the hall, right? I mean, I think that's yeah. the extent is walking down a hall. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. It's you know. slightly longer than Claire's appearance, right? By yeah. like a by 0.2 seconds. But at least Claire, yeah, at least Claire's doing something. Basically, Don Cheadle is just watching other people perform. That's all he, it's it's a very, of all of the Emmy nominations, I'm sure you guys already talked about this ad, ad nauseum, but it's one of the most inexplicable I've ever seen. It makes no sense. Other than people just love Don Cheadle, which granted, I understand. Well, you know, what's interesting is this is such a genre heavy category because you've also got Carl Weathers in The Mandalorian. That was a real role. Uh, Courtney B. Vance in Lovecraft Country, another real role. Uh, Timothy Oliphant in The Mandalorian. Uh, He also stood out. Uh, So, you know, any of those are great. And then you've got uh, Charles Charles Dance in The Crown um, in there, too. But, I mean, Courtney B. Vance is pretty strong in, in Lovecraft. Uh, I would not be mad to see that. And the thing with Courtney B. Vance is, you know, he's he's kind of SAG royalty, right? So if the actors are voting for this category, don't they kind of go with, uh, you know, one of the one of the leaders of uh, 
the SAG Foundation, or am I reading too much into that, Jazz? I have it split between I yeah I don't know I have it split between Charles Dance and Courtney, and Courtney for the same reason you just said that he is loved by actors they see his name they love him but I think the show is getting some love and you know it's obviously getting love I don't know yeah I think it's between him and him and Charles for sure yeah Danielle how about you no I agree with that I mean I don't I don't know if we should assume SAG voters will have a dominating factor but I, I do think this is a good example of where you know if you're voting down the line on the crown I think Charles has a really good shot it's interesting. They're both uh, both Charles Dance and Courtney B. Vance are playing characters who were killed off very early in the run of that season. So, spoiler uh, alert, Adam. Spoiler, spoiler <laughs> alert for yeah. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen these shows, then I don't know what to say to you at this point. But um, <laughs> yeah, they've been spoiled on everything by <laughs> yeah, now. Exactly. Right. But um, but you know, I, it's it, you know, I think. Uh, What's interesting to me is that I thought Charles Dance made a bigger impact in season three of The Crown uh, as Mountbatten. Uh, in you know, in part, you know, his his role was so cut off so early in season four that it's almost his his loss is what had made the impact there. Whereas Courtney B. Vance's character also killed off early, but comes back in you know sort of a sci-fi way in some in and in flashbacks and. And his loss is really, I think, much more sort of shocking and deeply felt. Uh, and and I, I, I would give it to him. I think I, I would, I would, he'd be the person I think that will end up winning. And now we move on to the comedy guest actor categories, or as we should call them, the comedy in Saturday Night Live uh, guest actor <laughs> uh, categories. Starting with uh, guest actress. Uh, so from SNL, you've got Maya Rudolph and Kristen Wiig. Uh, and then you do have uh, also two from Black Lady Sketch Show and Issa Rae and Yvette Nicole Brown. And then uh, sort of the outliers, you got Jane Addams from Hacks and Bernadette Peters from Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. So interesting mix. Um, but it just does feel like, you know, Maya Rudolph, who doesn't love Maya Rudolph, uh, you know, especially in a year where, you know, her... Her key role these days as as uh, Kamala Harris uh, also, uh, you know, won the election. So maybe we partly have Maya Rudolph to thank. I don't know. But uh, uh, Adam, why don't you uh, start with this one? What uh, What do you think? I, I think you're right. I think it's Maya Rudolph to lose. Um, you know, I I I I think that this is an example of perhaps voters not thinking too hard about this particular category and just going with the name that they most remember and. And the role that had the largest impact beyond the show, and I think that's Maya Rudolph's. Um, you know, I and it's interesting. You know, Jane Adams. I wouldn't say that that's a particularly comedic role on a very sh- funny show. Her performance is far more dramatic in nature, um, but you know, she does sort of stand out as. You know, all due respect to Bernadette Peters, I don't know how many voters watched Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist across the board. And if you're if you're wanting to give an Emmy to somebody who wasn't on a sketch series, Jane Asim is sort of the only person that you could do that for. But it, I don't know. She just strikes me as a more dramatic. 
it's a more dramatic performance. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like it comes down to either Maya Rudolph or or maybe Issa Rae. Um, but uh, Danielle, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with what you guys were saying about Maya. I do think that you know she won last year. I think it's hers to lose, as Adam put it very succinctly. Um, I you know we've talked before about because there's only two sketch series nominated in that category. If they can make a statement with a black lady sketch show winning. And I think arguably you could say the same about this category if you gave it to someone like Issa, because she's been so underrepresented at the Emmy. She's gotten nominations before and, and certainly for Insecure, but she hasn't won anything yet. And so this maybe is a way to do that. Um, but it's it feels like Maya made a bigger impact because, as you said, you know, she's not nominated for playing Kamala Harris, but that's such a part of the season that to a voter who's thinking of what she did this season, they may just remember that and vote regardless of the fact that that was not in her actual nominated episode. And I know that I'm speaking in present tense. They already voted. It's already done. I don't know why I'm speaking that way. <laughs> um, well, and, and Maya won last year too. So there, there is always that, uh, you know, uh, uh, momentum is on her side, right, Jazz? Yeah, I'm totally, you've already said, I think you've already said everything. Yeah, it's between... Maya's to lose or Isa will surprise and she'll win here and it will win sketch series. And then you've got comedy guest actor, which is all SNL and then Morgan Freeman as Morgan Freeman. So you've got Dave Chappelle, you got Dan Levy, you got Daniel Kaluuya, you got Alec Baldwin, uh, and then the outlier Morgan Freeman playing himself in Kaminsky method. Um, but you know, it, uh, they they do love their Chappelle at the the TV Academy. Um, yeah, you know, I'm also not going to be surprised if he wins the Variety Special uh, pre-recorded, just because everything else will kind of cancel each other out. So there's a good chance that uh, it's another good year at the Emmys for for Mr. Chappelle. Um, I mean, I agree. I do think that he is definitely one of the top two. I look at someone like Dan and I say. You came off such a sweep of of Schitt's Creek that I feel like maybe they want to keep that going. You know, I do think that he has a little bit of heat still from that show. And, um, you know, I know I talk all the time about vote splitting and I know I did earlier for a different category. But I think in this case, like you can't avoid some vote splitting in SNL and it doesn't matter. I think it's definitely going to go to one of them. I was just going to say, I do believe if Daniel Kaluuya wins here, he would be maybe the first actor to win an Oscar and an Emmy in the, in, oh, this, in a sorry. single I meant, year. I meant Dan Levy, but yes. Also. No, no. I, yeah, there's two different da- There's a Daniel and then there's a Dan. I mean, they're, yeah. Yeah. I know you're talking about Dan Levy or Levy. I, I, um, I, I was, I, I, but Daniel Kaluuya who won best supporting actor at the Academy Awards this yeah. year. He would not be the for, first. He yeah. would be, but he would be one of few. I mean, Helen Mirren definitely won. Uh, in the same year. Oh, and I'm blanking on who else, but it's, we, we published it. It's all correct on our website. Photobrandy.com. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm blanking off <laughs> the top of my head. Time. That's why Google is my best friend. Um, well, let's hit, uh, we've already talked about reality host in a past uh, episode. So let's move on to one more major category at the uh, creative arts. Uh, and one that we haven't talked about yet, because maybe no one cares is TV movie. Does anyone care about TV movie? I don't know that they do, but nonetheless, you do have contenders. You, uh, you know, you've got Sylvie's love, uncle Frank, Oslo, Chris, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the square and Robin Roberts presents Mahalia. Um, 
you know, I, I think by default, uh, you know, Sylvie's Love seems to have gotten the, the biggest push, at least by Amazon. So that may help it. But I mean, I also think it was just the best received of those. I think that it, it just in general, I think it, it got the best reviews and it got the most sort of notice, you know, when it first premiered. Um, there's a giant, giant billboard for Robin Roberts Presents Mahalia that is within view of the Variety offices. That's the Lifetime billboard, yeah. And, it rotates different content, yeah. It, it's been there for ages, every single time I pop into the to the office about once a week or so. And so in in some ways I'm pulling for that for that to win just 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 on sheer force of will of that billboard <laughs> alone. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I also wonder honestly, if people are just not going to be able to resist voting for Dolly Parton for Christmas on the square, it just seems like that that could be like, you know, she, she helped save the world with the Moderna vaccine. So let's, let's give her an enemy. Maybe we should give her an Emmy. At least like, (laughs) yeah. I mean, it's also just like the, it's like an upbeat movie you know a lot of these other movies they're i don't want to call them downers but they are much more serious much more traditional awards fair but in a moment where maybe we want something a little lighter a little bit more fun who doesn't want to see christine baranski sing and prance around a, a soundstage that looks like a small town i mean i loved it i'm not gonna lie i i would vote for it it's fun it's fun and it's Dolly Parton. Like you just can't, you can't go wrong with Dolly, right? Like, I think that's the thing. And to Adam's point about the billboard, Netflix did a takeover at the farmer's market a couple of weeks ago and they brought Christmas to the Grove again as part of their FYC campaign. And yeah, it was, it was out there. So. Well, here's my idea, by the way, I'll leave you with all of this. There are more Christmas movies out there than they are sketch shows sketch comedy shows so should there not be a christmas movie emmy category mike and should we start campaigning for that next year outstanding christmas movie <laughs> i think i think america would love that i think people would tune into it you need to be a little <laughs> bit more inclusive it needs to be a holiday movie okay okay holiday holiday movie. Movie. maybe yeah. maybe oh, we say way. maybe we say winter holiday movie so we don't get the random valentine's day or halloween nonsense in there maybe we have to yeah, say like yeah. december you know your whatever is fall i don't know but or or maybe we just go holiday so that way like any of the arbor day movies or you know any random holidays flag day movies they 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 can be included too so then you've got like you know 60 70 80 Contenders? I mean... It's true. It's true. It would be probably one of the highest uh, amounts of nominees in the category because of the sliding scale. And then we would be having this argument next year about how do you compare Arbor Day to, to Hanukkah or Christmas? Like, those are different things. We should separate the categories. Well, it's a shame that I'm running out of award circuit columns you're adding, to write. So. You're adding a new day to the Creative Arts Emmys That's by, true. by talking <laughs> yeah. about this, Michael. It's your fault. Christmas in September. Well, now onward, we'll see you all this weekend. Check out, uh, head over to Variety.com for all of our Creative Arts Emmys coverage. We'll all be covering and and writing up a storm. And uh, we will see you next week, Jazz and Danielle. And thanks, Adam, for dropping by. Thank you so much for having me.
Based on a 60-issue science fiction comic book series and developed for television by Eliza Clark, FX on Hulu's Why the Last Man is set after a mysterious event wipes out every living creature with a Y chromosome, throwing the world into chaos. There's been an event. Everywhere, they're gone. I know you miss them. But we need people like you to deal with the panic and the outrage. We will rebuild together. This is an opportunity to be fearless. On the show, Congresswoman Jennifer Brown, played by Diane Lane, rises to become president of the United States. But it turns out her son survived the event. Widespread conspiracy theories abound, and Jennifer's political rivals circle, led by Kimberly Cunningham Campbell, played by Amber Tamblin. Kimberly senses that Jennifer is hiding something and tries to uncover the truth in order to bring her down. Friday's Danielle Terciano spoke with Tamblin to discuss the lengthy gestation of the series and how Ivanka Trump, Ben Foster, and mothers of school shooting victims helped her shape her Why the Last Man character. They began by discussing Tamblin's sense of anticipation as the show finally makes it to air. It's very exciting because this has been a long journey uh, for the road of this show and for the adaptation of the graphic novel, Why the Last Man. I know I can feel uh, the excitement, the the palpable energy around it, uh, both of the fans and I think also um, people who are newly finding out about it, how excited they are and just what a thrilling, uh, story and, and piece of territory to explore. So, um, so I'm just, I'm very excited for people to see it. This is one of the most thrilling experiences I've ever had an opportunity to be a part of as an actress. It just has really been a phenomenal journey. And I think we're telling a really extraordinary story about, uh, gender diversity and life and um, human nature, human emotional capacity. And we're telling it uh, in a way that I think is really unique and, and fundamentally important to right now. And I do want to unpack that a little bit because you were talking about this being, you know, such a great experience and how much of it comes from the story and the importance of the story and how much of it comes from maybe the energy and the vibe on set. I mean, this is a show where in the story, everything with a Y chromosome, except for one man and one monkey have died. And so that inherently lends itself to a lot of women on set. And what does that do? Does that make a different environment? We talk about that a lot, I think. Um, but I feel like this show maybe takes it to a different level. I think, uh, yeah, it definitely is part of the uniqueness of this story and both the experience in front of the camera and behind the camera um, when you are decentralizing a, a certain uh, point of view and perspective. And in this case, in this show, it's cisgender men. Um, you know, there's predominantly cisgender men, cisgender men because that is uh, the predominant species that is sort of taken out of the equation uh, in this show. But one of the things that the show explores is uh, the death of other people who are um, who are also affected by this massive pandemic that has no answers. There's no reason for why all of these people with Y chromosomes died. There's trans women. There's intersect people. There are also intersect people that are alive. There are 
trans men that are alive. There are, um, there are cis women that are alive. I mean, there's just, there's a lot at play to talk about the gender diversity of the show and, and to explore the combination of the, the, the relationships between all those types of people, both for the better and for the worse. And I think what the, um, what the show really offers that's pretty cool is that it, it shows the nuances between those conversations, whether it's um, a world in which a trans man is sort of traversing and dealing with being around a lot of uh, hetero, cis, predominantly white women um, in a cult and what that looks like and the fear and the terror that that presents. Um, or whether it is, for instance, my character, Kimberly Campbell Cunningham, which is unlike anything I've really ever played before. She's a concert, very a deeply conservative sort of uh, boy mom whose entire identity is through the patriarchy and through the men that were in her lives, her life that are now gone. Um, and sort of watching how how women navigate moving forward and and living their lives with the lack of an identity and a perspective that they solely lived through before, which was the, the, the male gaze. So what happens when you strip that away and when women who built their entire lives and careers and identities on the, on the points of view of men no longer have that, how do they exist? How do they struggle? How do they harm others? Um, so all of that, believe it or not, is I think really well navigated in this show. Uh, and, um, is done in a really fun, often like dark, comical way, which I think is something really important about the show that I want people to know. It's not like this dark discourse on death. It's uh, it is also highly funny at points because life is ridiculous. Well, it's it's interesting because you know all the things you're talking about. Obviously, the way that these different characters navigate the situation—that's a lot of where the diversity comes in. The points of view. Your character, you already said, you know, her being a conservative, conservative and specifically her being, you know, dominated by the men in her life up until this point. What did that allow for you in terms of layers of emotion in that first episode and that second episode when, you know, the event happens and now she has to deal with it? How much is there a sense of she can grieve, she can be broken down by her loss versus she has to be galvanized into finding power in a new way? I think for Kimberly, she's one of the only characters that at least we see in the beginning of this first season, uh, who is really unable to grapple with the way that she feels, because I don't think that that is something that was instilled in her and something she knows how to do, because it's not just about the grief of losing her, again, her husband, her three sons, her father, who's the president of the United States, all of whom die. It is about losing her identity. And when you do that, when you cut off a path to someone's livelihood and you and you sever their relationship to themselves in such a fundamental way and you are ill-equipped to deal with that in the way that Kimberly is because she has been very privileged in her life. She has, uh, I don't think has the tools or the emotional capacity to know how to deal with such trauma it it breeds in her a kind of um, empathetic monster that you will come to see over the course of the season, which is going to be really conflicting, I think, for viewers, because it will create someone who is 
who we both deeply care about and we kind of laugh at and feel for, who is simultaneously absolutely terrifying. And that combination to me, especially as an actor who's been, you know, acting for 25 years is, is the, you know, chef's kiss of, uh, of a character exploration. It is the thing every actor wants to be able to, to be a part of and to bring to life. So for me, she's, she is wholly unique in this story for a lot of reasons that I'll let the audience get to see, but I'll just tell you because you start to see it right off the beginning of the bat of the show. For instance, you know, she wears this armor, this sort of mask of makeup that she never takes off. Whereas pretty much all of the other women in the show and the men who are still alive do not. Everyone is just sort of trying to survive. They're trying to get through the day. They're trying to make sure that nuclear plants don't explode and that people can eat and that their safety and Kimberly is is kind of has kind of lost her mind and she's waddling around the Pentagon in high heels with a full face of mace, makeup uh, and um, you know bartering and trading for hair dye and hair, hair color. She's just sort of stuck in the old world and that's part of her trauma. And to see her when she starts to move through that. And to see the way she moves through that is very striking and I think very scary and will be a really fun character for audiences to watch. And she's, I mean, not really in the comics, like she's an amalgam, right? So what did you base her on? Were there people in your life or in the public eye that you said, I'm going to pull a little bit here, I'm going to pull a little bit there? So um, I actually didn't read the comic books and that was by design and by choice. Um, the other man that's on our show, I reference men because there's really only two on our show, which is York Brown um, and Sam played by Elliot Fletcher. And so Elliot and I both are our characters, Sam and Kimberly are not really in the comic books. So uh, he and I both kind of chose, which we never even talked about. We chose not to read the comic books. I think mostly because we wanted to just sort of um, create something based on the world that Eliza Clark, who's the creator of the show, had had made. Um, I know for me that I did sort of look through some of the very first book just to get a an origin sense of uh, of tone and and the way that the story felt. Um, and there is in in some of those pages there is reference to and they're showing some of these conservative women. So in my mind, Kimberly is one of those women. Uh, painted into the background, which is kind of a, a sort of a, a beautiful um, thing to think about as far as her character is concerned, because that is sort of where her life lives until later on in the season. But I like to think of her as someone who is and never was really, even though she thought she was the star of her own show and the center of her own universe. And even though that's what she always wanted, that's kind of not what she is and not what she's given until she's forced to kind of take it. And I mean, it does feel like she she might not be the star, but she has the ability to, I'm going to use the word weasel, her way in. And I know that's editorialization and that's fine. I, the internet can come for me. Um, because of, you know, as you mentioned, her father being the president, she has this proximity to all these political people, some of whom are still alive. She theoretically could get the ear of the new president. They may not always want to listen to her, et cetera. But... 
that puts her in a much different position, I feel like, than a lot of the other characters who are trying to survive. And as you were talking about, like just trying to figure out how they want to eat. So do you, is this something that she's going to have a sense of self-awareness about in the sense of, yes, things are terrible. Yes, she lost her whole family, but she has this unique power and how does she use it? It's interesting because I, I don't see her as fully, I, I, I see her as coming into a power inevitably and, and eventually. So there are two things that I studied for this character uh, in particular. Um, one of them was uh, I studied Ivanka Trump. I watched many videos of her speaking to foreign diplomats. Um, in specific, the one that I watched a lot was uh, the one where she's at the G20 summit and she sort of inserts herself into speaking to all these world leaders. She's speaking to, you know, princes and, um, you know, uh, all kinds of diplomats and people from all over the world. And, and there is, um, there is sort of this very sad, uh, sad way in which she is trying to be heard and to be taken seriously by these leaders. And, you can see their faces. You can see that they don't really take her seriously. Uh, and I use that as sort of a frame for Kimberly's entrance into this world. There's a sense from that video that she is sort of just being tolerated by the world leaders around her. And, um, and I think for Kimberly, it's sort of the same way that you see her um, dealing with all of these women who are now not just accustomed to being in power, whether they're senators or um, congresswomen, but now they are the the centers of power, the very top where her father used to be. And so for me, it's, she does have these connections, but she has to sort of learn how to wield them to get what she actually wants. And as far as Kimberly's grief is concerned, I also watched a, a lot of videos, which were extremely difficult to watch of um, especially mothers in interviews who were um, mothers of uh, school shootings, specifically several of the moms from the Sandy Hook shooting, um, because I really wanted to get right uh, the the stoicness that they were trying to provide in the interviews, the, the uh, inability to release that kind of a pain when you lose a child and what that does to you, how it, how you hold it in, how it, affects every mannerism, every move of your body, but that it's not just someone who's going to be crippled over on the ground crying at all moments that there is, when you have experienced that kind of loss, uh, it almost makes you numb. And so when you are speaking about it, it's in your voice, it's in your physical body, but it is not something that can present itself immediately. So I think much of that for Kimberly, uh, because she is the one, especially in, I think in the beginning of the season, for the most part, she has experienced the largest amount of grief, the most people, the, the largest identity loss out of all of the characters that are in the show. So I, I was trying, I'm trying to juggle and hold those, those two truths simultaneously throughout the show. Someone who is trying to be validated in her power, who's having a hard time doing that. And so she has to start using the people that she knows and the relationships she has within the Pentagon to try to get what she wants, coupled with swallowing and keeping down this firestorm of grief that will inevitably 
come out in some really horrific ways. Obviously, you already mentioned that there's a lot of empathy that needs to come with a character like this, but do you feel like you want to see her succeed? I think if I don't want her to succeed, then I've failed as an actor. I think any good um, villain, uh, and that's not to say that conservative women are villains, that's not a generalization, even though I do not identify with I would say 99.9% of what conservative women and their values are. Um, I think if I'm not creating a villain that is deep, deeply empathetic, that we care about, then I have done a disservice both to um, the character as a villain, but also to the idea of, of bringing people into um, to new understandings of life. So to me, I kind of feel like this, and I'm hoping that this portrayal is a bit of a Trojan horse um, in which I can get uh, different kinds of women to see each other better and to understand each other better um, and, and to understand that our shared connection and our shared oppression and struggle will always be through uh, the patriarchy. And I know that that word is so overused, but it's very true. I think conservative women don't understand that as much as um, as a lot of women on the other side or li liberal women do. But I hope that this portrayal of her kind of opens that door a little bit to, to understand that uh, with the absence of men and with the absence of this oppressive system that has allowed us to flourish, who are we? We have to ask those questions. Um, and often who we are is no one. And that is a terrifying thing to think about because it would not be said if it was the other way around. Right. And I mean, it's, you know, everything you're talking about is, to me, as somebody who does not do what you do, sounds like a great challenge. I'm sure part of that is why you want to take on a character like this because you get to stretch yourself that way. But having to put yourself in these shoes of this woman who you don't necessarily identify with, don't necessarily agree with, is there anything that you do feel like you walked away from understanding or I don't want to say emphasize again, but I mean, just feeling differently about, you know, walking away feeling like, all right, there's a little piece of this that I see in a different light now. I wish I could say that I did, but I think when you've been in the business of being an empath since you were 11 years old, I mean, and it is a business when you've been acting or even, I mean, as a writer, as a poet that requires uh, a kind of empathy and a kind of understanding that is different than, um, than any other kind of career in some ways, um, that I don't think that there's anything that I necessarily took away from it. Uh, that I felt differently about. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of people in my family who are conservative. I, you know, have a few friends who are conservatives. Um, you know, I, I will definitely say that when, you know, when this show was supposed to shoot last year in 2020, before the pandemic, um, uh, everything that was going on with the Trump administration and um, the, the extreme disinformation of last year and um, 
the amount of deaths that were, in my opinion, on his watch and are in his name because of COVID-19, I really struggled with how to bring, it was the first time ever that I struggled to, to find out how I was going to love this person enough to bring her alive. It was hard. I will definitely say that. And I had, um, you know, Ben Foster is a extremely close friend. I'm a godmother to his daughter and we had a talk on his stoop <laughs> and I consider him to be one of the, you know, one of the most incredible actors in his generation. And it was, I think, a needed talk um, just about the importance of, um, of, of remembering that that we are separate from the work that we're doing, but that we have to be as deeply involved with the truth of that work, regardless of how we might feel on a personal level in order to convey that. Um, and that was true. And he said that to, to, to honor the truth of, of the darkness of what Kimberly represents, I have to not only do it, but I have to be as truthful as I possibly can in the work, in the creation of her, so that it is honestly represented and so that I'm leaving a door open for a conversation to continue, a conversation that is potentially really difficult about uh, women and their relationships to each other. Right. And I mean, we didn't even get into that aspect of like when this was supposed to film and then when it did and like all of the things that in the real world are somewhat mirrored in the show, you know? I mean, obviously what happens in the show, it's not the same virus as COVID-19. No one is trying to draw a direct parallel, but there are things about the show that might feel to some people too close. What do you say to those people? Well, I don't, it's interesting because I do know that uh, like the number one streaming films and TV shows in the last two years has been like apocalypse pandemic shows. (laughs) Some people want to dive right in. It is human nature. It's true. It's human nature. You drive, it's, I mean, the painful truth is you drive by a car accident and most people don't speed up. They slow down. They want to see. And it was surreal for sure to be shooting a show about a pandemic um, during a time, especially we shot this in Toronto during this huge wave that they have in which had that they had in, in which they were clo- shut down and stay at home order for five months. So it was um, it was surreal in a lot of ways. But I think that 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 real life experience lent itself to the performances that you'll see from all of the actors in this show, because we felt confined, we felt cut off, we felt oftentimes alone. Um, so it also created a bond between all of us that is unlike anything I've had, I think, since like shooting Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, yeah, which could not be any different. I was just going to say, I mean, just the tone alone. Yeah. Yeah. But I do, I think that what people really need to, I, what I, I hope people glean from this and, and why I hope people watch it is because it is a, it is a fun fucking show. It is dark. It is very dark. It is weird. It is smart. It is the characters are so well developed, and their their intricacies between each other, their interpersonal relationships, their desires, um, their fantasies are, I think, so interesting and so well developed. And that it's a fun ride. It actually ends up becoming this really 
wild, fun ride that I think people will ultimately love. So it's not just a dark death story. Yes, that is very much a part of it. But there, it is It is one of the more multidimensional uh, shows that I have ever been a part of. And they'll see that. You'll, you'll see that as you watch it. It's a slow burn. That's Amber Tamblin, star of FX on Hulu's Why the Last Man, which premieres on Monday, September 13, with three episodes. And after the break, we remember Emmy-nominated Lovecraft Country star Michael K. Williams. This is Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're back. It's the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. We were all heartbroken to learn on Monday of the passing of Michael K. Williams and just days before he was expected to win an Emmy for Lovecraft Country. The actor will always be known first and foremost for his scene-stealing turns as some of the most gripping characters in TV history, including Omar in The Wire and Chalky White in Boardwalk Empire. But even in his more lighthearted roles, Williams brought a sly intensity that instantly stood out. But possibly the most personal work Williams did was on Vice TV's Black Market, in which the actor stopped acting and served as a real-world journalist, entering the dangerous world of illicit trade across the globe. On Black Market, Williams looked at the gambling underworld in New York, drug addicts in Liverpool, and the stolen car racket in New Jersey. Along the way, Williams also reconnected with the man who got him through some tough times during the filming of The Wire, the Reverend Ron Christian. In 2017, I met up with Michael K. Williams to discuss his career to that point, and we began by talking about his fantastic deep voice. Have you done much voiceover? No. No? Not a lot. Oh, how come? I don't know. I mean, I, I have, but yeah, not a lot. Yeah. No. Well, I would maybe. like to do more. I would actually like to do, I, you know, would like the opportunity to do one of those, uh, the, uh, the, the voiceover uh, movies, like the cartoons for the kids. Right. I would love to, you know, because I could do voices too. <laughs> See, <laughs> that's a sweet gig, right? Where you just get to show up in your sweats and and just go in a booth and and not have to you know do makeup or anything. Kind of just... like now, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's it's all the theater of the mind. Yeah, it is. So, well, Michael K. Williams, thank you so much for joining us. You're, uh, it must be interesting. You're, you're still doing some, some press. It's Emmy season uh, for, for shows that you shot a while ago. A lot of these shows you shot in 2015. Yes, and sir. now they're just now sort of up for, for Emmy recognition. So, yes, so you've been talking about these shows for a while. Are you sick of it yet? Or um, No. Uh, you know, I'm just I'm glad that, uh, you know, you know, the shows are getting, you know, some sort of recognition that people are recognizing it and, and, and that, you know, the, the stories are getting out there. Cause I, I, I think you're alluding to black market. I think that's the, that's the, and, and uh, the night of those shows were, you know, probably the furthest away from, you know, current time that I worked on and that they're still relevant now yeah. and, you know, still being looked at for consideration for whatever, you know, but, um, which I'm grateful for, but, you know, 
the same time, I'm grateful that it's still getting a viewing audience. People are still being educated to that world and, and you know, and uh, enjoying the art. Yeah, well, that's the great thing about TV in this age, right? You can still go and, and check black market episodes online and <laughs> the shows are, you know, possibly even more relevant today than they were a year ago. It's, 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 you know, all of these things are, are, you know, you talk to, you know, someone from the Mexican cartel and of course, Mexico hot in the news. Yes, uh, you do a number of international stories. And, and of course we're talking, I feel like a lot more about the world these days. Uh, you mentioned to me that when you get stopped on the street these days, people actually bring up black market, uh, probably more so than, than anything else here you're, you've worked on. And of course, everyone remembers you as Omar, uh, from the wire. So that's really interesting. That, that tells me something that people, uh, you know, this, this show resonated with people. You know, Mike, that's, that's, it, you know, that's 100% true, you know, and it's, it hasn't just been in this country. It's been, you know, uh, I just left London. We're out there working on uh, on Star Wars and oh wait that movie that that little thing that little thing. <laughs> that, that, that little indie yeah you know <laughs> but you know and you know all kinds of people would stop and just like you know all different races and you know in the streets of London just would just stop me and be like you know it was the first and foremost was um the black market and they would thank me for for you know putting that out there and and and, and how truthful they thought it was. And, you know, it, it, uh, it kind of broadened my platform and internationally in a, in a weird way. Now I'm just, I'm just grateful that people responded to it the way they, they, the way that they are. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is because it was so personal. You know, we got to see a lot more of you and, and you were honest about your struggles, uh, you know, both as a, as a youth, but also, you know, as you were working on the wire and, and talk about that and, and sort of bearing your soul a little bit more and your willingness to, to do that. You know, Michael, that, that's, that was, um, a personal decision I made to, to not look stupid. I, I, I knew early on, you know, approaching this because I, I had no clue of what this world was. I, you know, I, I come from knowing my lines and, you know, being the perfect, you know, the perfect scene. And none of those tools worked in the black market world. I had to let go of all of that and, and be Mike. And, you know, that Mike is not the most, you know, educated person in the world. I don't, you know, and so it was like, they're going to know that, find out that about me. And when, you know, when I had, when I had to not worry about that, when I, when I let that go, that, that fear, of of looking ignorant in this world, what happened was I got to learn. I got to, I, I allowed myself to learn. And so I'm, you know, I approached the black market as the viewing audience, like, you know, coming in and asking the honest question from my heart, what what is it about this that I need to know within the contents of what's going on? And when that started to happen, it it made it real for me. And so therefore that's, what the connection, what you see as a viewing yeah. audience. Well, I think that that authenticity too sort of, uh, helped you land some of these, these interviews, talking to people who were masked, who, you know, were, were willing to still come on TV and, and talk about their lives. And I can't take credit for that, Mike. I, I, yeah. I, I really, you know, I, you know, thank you, but I can't take credit for that. You know, um, I am nobody special. In that world, I mean, it doesn't matter that I'm a nice guy or I think I'm a nice guy or I'm, I'm coming, I'm doing these interviews for the right reasons or 
or I'm, I'm popular, or I got a great TV show that tells great characters. None of that crap matters in this world. Yeah. I am asking people to put down their bread and butter, their their drug of choice, their their pain and suffering. I'm asking people to stop their real life to talk to me. And it's no money. We're not going to make you a star. I can't even guarantee that I can help you out of your situation. You know, um, that had nothing to do with me. Uh, what I will say is it maybe it has something to do with um the 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 um the reputation that vice and viceland has you know maybe it's a combination of all I, I don't know, but what it was clear to me is that these people were clearly looking for a lifeline, yeah, Hope. yeah. Well, you know, in the the Gunrunner episode, uh, where where you talk to, to to the young man in Atlanta, and you 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 laid out for him, you say, "Hey, listen, you know, these guns ultimately you're sending them to New York. They're going to be held by another young African American male who's going to shoot another young African American male. What do you feel any regret or guilt?" And he says, "Yeah." I don't want to do this. I, I feel like I have to do this. And it kind of felt like he just needed to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he did. He did need to say that. And, and people need to hear that, that don't come from that walk of life. You know, the black market, I, I met all different nationalities, um, different walks of life, people doing different things for various reasons, some a little more callous than others. But the one thing that they all had in common was if I came there with some magic wand and offered them a better way of life, they all would have taken it without a, with, with, without, a, without batting an eyelash. Yeah. None of them were happy in their way of life. None of them were proud. It was like, it, some of them may have, um, had a, 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 a bigger acceptance that, look, this is it. This is what I do. F it. You know, um, more so than others, but none of them would not have, would not turn down a better chance or a better opportunity in life to stay where they're at in the, in any particular situation that you saw them in, in the black market. Well, so many of these people are in these impossible situations and I don't think anyone knows the answers. Uh, you know, I wish we had answers, but after doing these episodes, did you feel more frustrated, more sort of a little more despair on what's going on in the, in the real world? Or how did you feel after doing these? Um, black market uh, definitely left a void in me, uh, an emotional void in me. I, I, you know, the last episode we shot was, uh, was in Liverpool. That was the actual, we, you know, we wrapped, but it was, it was a season wrap. And, um, it, you know, I just left, I left Liverpool. It was cold. It was a winter. That's a, that's a very, um, Liverpool reminded me a lot of like Baltimore and mm -hmm. Brooklyn, like that, that it's, you know, these, these, this strong spirit, but broken people, you know, and, and, um, like one of the, St Steven, Steve, I forget his last name, the tall, light skinned brother in the suit that, that, uh, walked me around that showed me Liverpool. The first thing, he, when I walked up to him, you know, I thought, you know, when I looked at him, I saw, okay, this, you know, well-dressed man, suit, overcoat, you know, you know, politician at best, right? He, he, he smiled, this nice bright smile, and he took my hand, and the minute he, he got me in a position where I couldn't, because he was physically bigger than me, yeah. he got me to a position where I couldn't run, and, uh, 
He says, are you a house or a field nigga? Mm. And uh, I looked at him. I looked him dead in his eye. Yeah, I said, really? You, 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 really? And he says, that's just, he says, oh, I got my answer. Now I know I can talk to you. Um, yeah. You know, those were the types of, 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 you know, I, I just left. I met so many bright spirits and so many broken people, so many people that I, I wish I had the resources to help them on their quest like that brother Stephen he he was already a, a strong pillar in the community wanting to do the doing the right thing you know there were other people who just needed a, a helping hand up and that left me with that left me with a huge void and and um and I struggled with that for for you know a long while after after we wrapped that show and you know I had my first ray of light out of that I had my first answer as to what I answer as to what I can do with, with my platform, with this gift that I've been given, the attention of of the people that I that I have. What can I do with that? And and for me, it be, you know, it's it started with this this documentary that I'm doing now with HBO. It's, it's starting with my my nonprofit organization that I'm I'm creating right now. You know, these are little things that um give me hope yeah. and fill that void inside. You've played many characters that are sort of from those kind of uh, bleak worlds. Did did this impact going forward uh, how you play those kind of characters? How how did this change you or, or uh, grow you as a, as an actor? Uh, you know, really spending some time talking to these people and, and exploring these worlds. Oh, uh, I, I don't. I, um, I can't really say it. Yeah. I can't really say how that has affected my work until it, 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 I, I, I'm in that moment. Uh, um, I will say that every, every, I, I'm, a, I'm, 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 I'm an observer of life and, 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 and human behaviors. I'm, I'm always watching, you know, so it's all, life is always yeah. impacting me. I just, you know, never know when it's going to come out. What you're going to, you know, I'm that guy, I'm that particular type of instrument. But I, I will say, um, I've always looked for the truth. I've always looked for um, the compassion, and I've always looked f looked for the humanity in every character I, I played. That's that's been three things I've always looked for since day one, and um, I, I don't see me changing from that. Whether whatever the world it is I'm in those three things I'm always going to look for first. Another thing about the show I wanted to ask you about is obviously you had a chance to interview Reverend Christian, who meant so much to you uh, before he passed away and, uh, you know, pay some, some sort of tribute to him by, by including him in the show. Talk a little bit about that, what that meant to you and, and also sort of uh, uh, how you felt about, you know, uh, having to, you know, uh, pay tribute to him. It, you know, he passed away at such a young age and, uh, what, what he meant to you and, and what that meant to put him in the show. Um, you know, it, it, it's, a that, that man, you know, he changed my life, you know, um, he uh he gave me uh 
helped me to build my relationship with, you know, with my God of my understanding and, and, you, you know, it's, I, I don't even, I still can't believe that he's, you know, he's physically not here. Yeah. It's a still processing, processing, you know, that, that physical loss of not having him as, you know, here. Um, but, uh, you know, it, 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 he, 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 his passing, it, it definitely made me realize how short and how fragile life is. Um, in his passing, he has, uh, renewed my urgency to live my purpose driven life, to not waste time, to not allow people to waste my time, you know, to live each day to the fullest and do what it is I came here to do. His passing has like renewed my vows with that, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really nice to to see the two of you, the the interaction, the bond. To to see that on screen was was really really special, and and that's something that I'm sure you're proud of having that that sort of documentation now on your show. Speaking of the show, what what is the word on season two? What uh, where where do we stand? Uh, um, you know, um, you know, with Spike Jones and with the Viceland family. And with the in 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 an aspect to to like the black market world, there there really is no such thing as a season two. Yeah, we uh, you know, you can't like these are real people, real real life issues. You can't really. I don't. Spike and I have decided that you know we're not gonna put black market into a cookie cutter. TV, the television show type of format. Yeah. We're not going to do that. If, if, if something else moves us as, as a, as a, as producers for, of that show to, to, to move forward and to tell some stories, if it, if it feels right, we'll go with it. We're not really, you know, right now Spike and I are working on a, a um, and, and the people at Black Market, I mean, at, at a Viceland, we're working on a ton of, 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 um, you know, um, New projects that fall under the umbrella and some don't. I, I don't know if we're gonna just go out and look for it to make a, an exact replica of what the black market was. I don't know if that will happen. We, ju- we just don't know. Maybe yeah. it will, maybe it won't. Yeah. But obviously, like you mentioned, you're doing other documentary projects. We're doing it, this yeah, is, man, yeah. We're keeping it moving. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. an important part of, of, you know, telling other people's stories and, and shining spotlights on, on stories that maybe haven't been really exposed to people. So, so that's cool. Is that? Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, your, your other things. Uh, you know, we mentioned Night Of, of course, and uh, again, maybe season two, we're still, <laughs> I know I've seen quotes that you've been in the past, like they ought to, they're, they're leaving money on the table if they don't do a season two. So fingers crossed, they'll, they'll figure out where to go with that. We kind of left Freddie hanging a little bit. We, there, there, there's more to be told with, with that character. So would you like to, to explore him some more? Um, <laughs> Freddie, you know, uh, the the night of, I, I think, 
I think it, it's um. I think it's is is good just the way it is. Yeah. I think that what I would what I would rather see done is um to see uh us as a society tackle the issues in real life. What 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 Nas what we see what we see the character Nas go through. Yeah. You know that would be a a better a better a narrative at this 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 time in 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 our society. Let's do it for real. Yeah, yeah. Did you get a chance to watch the Khalif Browder documentary series? No, that, I haven't. But I, I, am fully aware of yeah. of the contents of of you know. Yeah, we need to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, the the issue of Rikers and and the good news is that they're they're discussing closing it, but there's so so much red tape and so much uh, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, Sort of ba- uh, obstacles. That's the word I was looking for. Obstacles. There's a lot we- of obstacles, yeah. you know, and it, we, you know, it, it's you know, change is difficult. You know, however, as good as it is, you know, change is difficult, and and it's new and it's uncomfortable. And it, you, I'm not going to sit and act like, oh, just close the bad, close the bitch down. You know, you that takes a lot of uh, planning and 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 think and 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 you know, strategies. You know, you can't just. You know, but we can do better when when you think about all the money that it costs to put one person on Rikers Island. I think it's like a hundred grand. It's, it's some it's some crazy amount of money. I, I'm I'm quite sure I have faith in this country in our leaders that we can find a better way to spend all that money and to better serve um, our citizens, our brothers and sisters, our sons and daughters who make mistakes and end up in the penal system. I think that we can use the money that we are throwing away just to, to bury them in a place like Riker, in a hellhole like Rikers Island. I have faith that we can come up with a better idea to spend that money where, you know, it can be less and more beneficial for, for society and the people who are trying to reenter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the fear, I mean, the hope is that they don't shut down Rikers and we end up with 20 mini Rikers that, that it, it ends that's up not, just being spread around. Yeah, that's not going to work either. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right? We, we can do better. We, I, I, do I have all the answers? Hell no. But I mean, again, I, I have faith that we can do better. Obviously, what we're doing now is not working. No one comes from right. No one leaves Rikers Island with a better outlook on life. Well, let's talk about Happen Leonard real quick, because uh, season two, Mucho uh, Mojo, was uh, uh, it, it felt like things got uh, came came a little more uh, dramatic this season. Obviously, the storyline was was a little more dramatic, and uh, it uh, it was it was a crisper. Uh, sharper season two to some degree. I mean, season one was great, but, but there was a real strong storyline with, with the, uh, you know, the disappearance of, of these young uh, African Americans. Uh, again, a very, very important topic and, and, but, but really crispy, crisply done. And I guess you have to in six episodes, you have to really get to the point, but, uh, talk about that show and, and what that show means to you and, uh, you know, what, uh, you're getting out of it. Um, you know, Happy Letter is a, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice stable job. It's a great place it's to tell good stories. Um, it's a, it's a buddy dramedy, you know, at its core, and it tackles these these uh, again these social and 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 racially ra- and racial and 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 you know and and gender driven uh, topics that that still plague 
our society today. So it, it's a it's a great, you know, I, I'm um, I'm very grateful at this this point in the game to have that little show. That, you know, come we do we shoot that in Atlanta at the end of the year, and 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 Joe Lansdale and and John Worth and all those guys in the writers' room. They, you know, they're telling. I, I feel really good stories. It's you know, you know it's a little over the top at times, yeah. but you know, it's the Happen Leonard world. It's, it's, and uh, I get to I get to play with, with with a good friend and colleague, James Purevoy. And the new thing about Happen Leonard with me is um, I'm on the other side now. You know, and, um, James pulled me aside. He was like, he says, uh, you know, Mike. He says, you know. When we used to be at our career, we would, you know, we would go to the show, we would get on, get a part of the show, and we would go, we would crush it. And, you know, we would work with the stars of the show, and they would just, you know, get, you know, be like, damn, they don't get to, you know, they have to just react to all this, these great performances that we would bring in. We're those guys now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like, we get to sit there and watch all these beautiful actors come in and crush it. And we have to, we react to their, to their action. Yeah. We're yeah. on the other side of it now, and, and um, yeah, I'm just I'm playing that game now with, with with someone who I you know I have a lot of respect for, and I'm on that that side of the tracks, and you know every season you know it's this new a new adventure with a whole new crew, a, a, a list of castmates coming in, and, and we get just you know it's it's a interesting world to to work in. That's a lot cool. of hard work, but yeah. you know fun world, very fresh, always something new. <laughs> Always something different. Have they given yeah. you uh, much, much sense what season three is going to look like yet? Or is that... Uh... I'm, I'm, um, I haven't read anything, but I'm hearing rumors of, uh, you know, it's going to deal with the, the, the Ku Klux Klan. So another uh, serious uh, topic, but done in the happen letter. happen letter uh, format, yeah. in fashion, yeah, yeah, if you will. So, well, that should be cool. So you're a b- busy man, Michael K. Williams. I'm trying, Michael. So, I'm trying. Michael K. Williams was just 54. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Emmy predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Daniel Terciano and Jazz Tanke, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit.